Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is aimed towards both medical professionals and the general public. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Melody Carter as our guest for today's episode. Dr. Carter is a staff clinician with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in the Laboratory of Allergic Diseases. Dr. Carter has had a very productive research career focusing on pediatric mastocytosis and idiopathic anaphylaxis. In addition, Dr. Carter has been very active within the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, including serving as a past member on the board of directors. With that introduction, Dr. Carter, thank you so much for taking time today to join us and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, to be honest with you, this is a topic that we've been interested in discussing for, for quite some time, and you really are the perfect guest, uh, as our listeners will, will soon hear uh, as you describe this uh, very interesting topic. But before we get into mastocytosis, I'd really like to learn more about your interesting career and somewhat of a non-traditional path towards where you are today. Would you mind describing your background for us? I'll try to give you the, the short version. Um, <laughs> so I, I went to medical school to be a pediatrician and thought that that would be all that I would do. And I was on staff at Emory University um, working with um, general pediatrics. So I did 15 years of general pediatrics. In the last five years, I started doing research in inner city asthma with Tom Platts Mills at the University of Virginia. Got really interested in uh, research and, and allergy immunology as a field. Um, came to the NIH to um, do my allergy immunology fellowship and started working with Dean Metcalf with mastocytosis and had the opportunity as a pediatrician to focus on the pediatric aspects of the disease. And so now 20 plus years later, I am still doing that. So you fell in love with mast cells, it sounds like. And uh, I think that's a perfect segue to just start by having you describe what mast cells are, where are they located within our bodies and what do they do? So mast cells are a type of white blood cells that are helpful um, in eliminating parasites and worms. So now that we've cleaned up our environment and we don't have as much exposure to parasites and worms, they found something else to do. So they got involved in allergy and in inflammatory diseases. So mast cells do not circulate in the blood as other typical white cells, but they are found in the tissues mainly in the skin and the GI tract. So we all have mast cells in our skin and GI tract, but also in areas that become inflamed. So areas that become inflamed with, with allergy or chronic inflammatory diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis, there'll be mast cells in the joints. If you have asthma, you have increased mast cells in your lungs. And if you have hay fever, you have increased mast cells in your airways. 
And uh, so, as you mentioned, they initially evolved to help fight off infections that we no longer really have to deal with, especially as, as we become more urbanized. Um, but, you know, so what do, they, what do they do? Do they contain any certain elements that we should be aware of? Or, you know, what, what purpose do they serve now? So they, they contain mediators that were good for eliminating parasites and worms, but now those same mediators are induced when we have an allergic response. And so the chemicals that are in mast cells are prepackaged. Some are prepackaged, and so they can respond immediately to the environment so that if you have someone that's allergic to peanuts, for instance, and they anaphylax, that the reaction can occur occur immediately because they have these prepackaged chemicals, mainly histamine, tryptase, and some other uh, chemicals. There are some other um, chemicals or mediators that are produced much later, but the main um, one that we're concerned with are the ones that uh, are involved in the immediate reaction. Hmm. And so you've mentioned what happens sort of when they're, the mast cells are stimulated by an allergic response, but are there, are there other instances where mast cells can misbehave or are there conditions where they are overactive or present in higher than normal amounts? So um, that almost describes mastocytosis. And so, <laughs> um, so that's a good segue into say with mastocytosis, um, patients with mastocytosis have higher numbers of mast cells than we do in areas where we have them. So in our GI tract and in our skin, they have more mast cells. But when you have systemic disease, you also have mast cells in locations where people that do not have mastocytosis will have mast cells, such as the bone marrow, the liver, the spleen, or the lymph node. And if you have systemic disease that's associated with the most common mutation in the molecule um, in mast cells, but it, that's this molecule called KIT is also in other cells. But when it's in a mast cell, it has a mutation that causes it to be activated or kind of already ready for um, inflammation so that it's, it's sitting there and it takes less stimulation to activate the mast cell in someone with mastocytosis and this mutation. So unlike an, an allergic response where you really have to have the specific IgE antibody to sort of, you know, be triggered by the antigen to open them up, it sounds like what you're describing is mast cells that are just really twitchy and can be opened up for a variety of reasons. Do you, do you think that's accurate? Yes, I think that's accurate. So these mast cells are a little bit twitchier and they are releasing mediators at low levels um, all the time without activation, which is why patients with mastocytosis may have an elevated serum tryptase, which is an indicator of your mast cell burden and is specific for mast cells. So there's another cell that's involved in allergic reactions called basophils that have a lot of histamine, but they only have about 5% of all the tryptase that's produced. And so we use the tryptase as a marker of mast cell disease. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you started to describe different types of mastocytosis. And when you think about this condition, how should we consider these different types? Uh, are there you know, is differences in clinical presentation or other criteria to help separate them out? So there are two major categories for um, mastocytosis. There's cutaneous disease and systemic disease. 
Both categories have subvariants, um, and we'll provide some references uh, that you can look at these later. Children are mainly diagnosed with cutaneous disease, but some also have systemic disease, and they may have um, the typical or characteristic lesion that's associated with mesocytosis called urticaria pigmentosa or macular papular cutaneous mesocytosis, and these lesions may be present as early as birth. Adults typically are diagnosed with systemic disease, although there are reported cases of cutaneous disease only in adults. And the criteria for the diagnosis is based on clinical and laboratory data. So it's what the, the characteristics that patients um, present with clinically, but it also has to be um, correlated with laboratory data. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like there's a, a variety of presentations based upon both age as well as symptoms and, and some of the evaluation, which we'll talk about momentarily. Uh, but, you know, one thing that I always think about as a clinician are that the symptoms that occur in patients with mastocytosis can overlap with many other unrelated causes. So what clinical features should prompt attention from medical professionals to consider this diagnosis of mastocytosis? So one of the most characteristic features of mastocytosis or cutaneous mastocytosis that does not overlap with other diagnoses with cutaneous lesions are the, the typical lesions that we see. So these lesions are permanent, they don't come and go, and they demonstrate this classic feature of a formation of a hive with redness upon stroking the lesion known as derriere sign because Derriere, Dr. Derriere actually created this, um, noticed that this was um, characteristic of these lesions. And so many times there are lesions that are pigmented, that are permanent, like cafe au lait spots that you see with neurofibromatosis, or there are um, other pigmented lesions and other blistering um, um, lesions in um, pediatrics that can be similar to mastocytosis, but typically that derriere sign with um, the hives and the permanent the permanency of these lesions, you just don't see um, with other lesions. So that's one of the, the main characteristics and adults and pediatrics have these lesions. So many other symptoms such as flushing, GI reflux, itching, stomach cramping, headaches, soft or loose stool. So these are symptoms that are associated with other diseases. So therefore, it's an important to, com to create a complete differential diagnosis and rule out these other diseases that have similar symptoms. Mm. I, I like that you said rule out other more common conditions with similar symptoms. But to go back to Derrier sign, because I always get very excited uh, when we see this in the in the office, and especially when we have medical students or residents with us. So, can you walk us through how do you typically try to elicit uh, the the hives or the the flushing uh, when you see these cutaneous lesions in your patients? So I'm glad you asked that question because one of the uh, cutaneous variants is called a mastocytoma. And this occurs in usually less than three lesions, but it's already a lesion that's raised. So it's papular. It contains just a ton of mast cells. And if you stroke those lesions, you can cause actually total body flushing with hypotension. So you don't mm. want, we typically do not stroke mastocytomas. But for the other lesions, they, um, 
they're usually the macular lesions and, and slightly papular lesions. I always use a, a tongue blade. Um, I don't use my fingernail. Um, and you want to use a tongue blade, one, because it's sterile, but two, and you don't have to exert a lot of pressure. In fact, especially in infants, if the parents are holding the baby or and the baby's moving around, you can just raise the, the shirt and you can see that the lesions are already urticated on their own. So it really, um, the younger you are, the less friction it takes to elicit this response. However, what's interesting is that over time, you may not be able to elicit this response. So a UP lesion in a, in a teenager may may not um, be positive for derriere sign where it is positive in a two-year-old. So as the lesions age, they become less excitable and they just may have just kind of developed a desensitization to the friction. Mm, interesting. Uh, do you find that, you know, increased body temperature or, you know, will parents report to you that when their child comes out of a, a warm or hot bath or shower or after being outside on a hot day, do you notice the same sort of phenomenon around these lesions or does, does it really only come with uh, pressure on the spot? It's mainly with pressure. So the heat and the cold can be non-immunologic triggers for mast cells, but they typically will flush. The lesions may not mm. hive. Um, but they will have more flushing with, with those symptoms. Now, if you have someone that takes a shower, the pressure of the water hitting on the lesions will cause that symptom. So some, sometimes children don't want to take a shower. They'll take a bath instead. And if, and sometimes the lesions are in the scalp, especially in children, and then they don't like to have their hair brushed or combed. Hmm, interesting. What type of laboratory evaluation should be considered when mastocytosis is suspected? And along those lines, are there specific criteria uh, based upon those values that can help establish the diagnosis? You mentioned serum tryptase. I'm sure we'll hear about that uh, now, but what else should we be considering? So that is one of the most um, valuable lab tests, the serum tryptase, because it is a marker of mast cell burden. The normal value is less than 11.4, but many patients with mastocytosis have values in the normal range, especially children. So you can't use this as a, this simple only single diagnostic tool to make a diagnosis of mastocytosis. So, so you really use that as a marker of mast cell burden, um, not so much as the diagnosis, because as I said, it can be in the normal range. But when the level is above 20, you start to get suspicious for systemic disease. However, children with diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis, which is one of the cutaneous variants, typically will have a tryptase above 11.4 because they have such a large mast cell burden in their skin and it's reflected of the mast cells in their skin. But a skin biopsy of the lesion, um, if the diagnosis is not obvious, is also really helpful because there's a distinct pattern of mast cells in the skin of these, um, in the biopsies of these lesions. However, the gold standard for the diagnosis of systemic disease is a bone marrow biopsy. And there's criteria that are um, that you use to make that diagnosis. However, this classic pattern of the mast cell aggregates with abnormally shaped mast cells can be seen in other organs, such as a lymph node, and the diagnosis can be made from lymph node or a GI tract um, biopsy. And then recently, well, more recently, starting in 2011, Thomas Christensen in Denmark created a blood test for the mutation that's most commonly seen 
in patients with systemic mastocytosis. And that test has now been shown to correlate with bone marrow disease in adults and in children. And it's a good screening tool if you suspect someone has systemic disease because it's a blood test um, and you don't have to undergo bone marrow, at least initially. But if there's a really low mutational burden, so if you have someone, and I have patients, I have a, a, a child with systemic disease with a tryptase of eight, um, but if you have a really low mutational burden, this test can be negative in the peripheral blood. But when it is positive, it's highly suspicious for systemic disease. If it's negative, though, you may have to um, do other tests to, to um, make the diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned earlier some references. And for our listeners, uh, if you look at the Academy website where we have our page, we will have some links uh, so you can look at all this information again, including the diagnostic criteria. Well, uh, back to the serum tryptase for a second, because I know a lot of people really focus on the serum tryptase level. And you just mentioned that you can have a normal tryptase level in, in some circumstances and still have systemic mastocytosis. And there's more to the evaluation than just that. But are there other conditions that can cause an elevated tryptase level baseline where it may be confused for mastocytosis? So there are, there are other um, diseases that can have an elevated serum tryptase. It's, it would be difficult to confuse them with mastocytosis since um, one of the most common causes for an elevated tryptase that we've now found out recently is hereditary alpha tryptosemia. That's present in about 90 when um, Dr. Uh, Jonathan Lyons took a look at that in thousands of samples that they looked at. 91% of the patients with an elevated serum tryptase had hereditary alpha tryptosemia. And the second most common was chronic renal or end-stage renal disease at about 7%. And only 1% of the patients with a clonal mast cell disease were represented in this population. And the reason I say that it would be difficult to, to confuse them, because remember, making the diagnosis based on the tryptase value alone does not give you a diagnosis of mastocytosis. So none of these other conditions with elevated serum tryptases have skin lesions. So patients with mastocytosis, for the most part, I would say that's 90% of them probably have skin lesions, except there's an interesting population of patients with venom anaphylaxis. May, they may or may not have an elevated tryptase, but they have systemic mastocytosis and they have no skin lesions. And then we have a population here that we looked at at the NIH with idiopathic anaphylaxis with no skin lesions, but were positive for bone marrow um, with systemic mastocytosis. Most of them have tryptase values between 11.4 and 20. So they may not even have a tryptase above 20. But if you think about both of these populations, they have a severe manifestation of an allergic disease. So they, they both have anaphylaxis, either venom anaphylaxis or idiopathic anaphylaxis, but they don't have venom sensitivity. They're, they don't, you know, they're not just allergic. They actually have anaphylaxis. Hmm. That's really interesting. On a related but separate topic, I, I, I think we need to at least spend a couple of seconds talking about the important differences between mastocytosis and then mast cell activation syndrome. So can you just comment upon how that, how those differ in regards to clinical presentation as well as diagnosis? Um, so there are some easy distinguishing factors and there are some more difficult ones. 
So if we, we go back to just looking at a list. So with we look at the skin and mastocytosis, they're typically permanent skin lesions. In mast cell activation syndrome, there are no skin lesions. Um, in patients with systemic mastocytosis and some with cutaneous disease, there's a mutation in the KIT gene. So in mast cell activation, that will be no. Um, there's validated criteria for mastocytosis um, that's been um, validated over time. In mast cell activation, there are some criteria, but it's not as well validated in all populations. And then in mastocytosis, the symptoms are fairly consistent across all variants. So they have flushing, they have pruritus, they have GI symptoms, they have headache. And we can see kind of a, a difference in severity based on, on the disease variant. However, in mast cell activation, there's a wide spectrum of symptoms, some that we are not sure correlates with mast cells and some that we can document that are correlated with mast cells. And so um, mast cell activation is still kind of in its infancy with trying to, to refine it and define it a little bit better. Um, so those are kind of the, the main um, distinguishing factors. Oh, thanks for discussing that. It, we've covered so much ground already, and this is already turning out to be a, a sort of a primer on, on mastocytosis. Uh, to help our listeners, do we have a current, you know, evidence-based one-stop shop of guidelines that we can reference to uh, to learn more about uh, current clinical criteria for mastocytosis? Um, yes. So, so there is a for for mastocytosis. There's the most recent update of the WHO criteria that's in a, a blood publication from 2016. For mast cell activation syndrome, there's a series of um, publications that are coming out in a JACI in practice um, targeted uh, feature. And so it's going to have all of the latest updates um, on mast cell activation. And um, so there, there's a series of them. I think there's probably about five or six that are coming mm -hmm. out in a targeted uh, JACI in practice. But there are some other criteria that have already that are already been published um, with uh, Peter Verlent and Jim Aiken as uh, the first authors, and so there are criteria that define this. Um, and it it was more the severe mast cell activation syndrome, so that they had to have a documented elevation in one of the mast cell mediators. And so that was mainly tryptase, but some of the urinary mediators like prostaglandins, prostaglandins and leukotrienes. Um, and then they also had to have a response to anti-mediator therapy. And there's been a lot of discussion of whether that, um, that was too confining and that there are a lot of people outside of that um, realm of, of diagnostic criteria that felt like they had mast cell mediated events, but not to the point of anaphylaxis. And so that's where the new guidelines are um, taking into that, uh, taking that into account. Mm. Well, that's great. And I, I was not aware of the upcoming um, uh, series in uh, the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and Practice. So I'm really glad you mentioned that. And we just may have to have you back in the future to discuss that if you're willing. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Moving along, uh, you mentioned some important differences in the presentation of pediatric and adult onset mastocytosis, but can you offer a little bit more insight in regards to uh, either treatment or prognosis or some other differences between pediatric versus adult disease? 
So, so the main difference in pediatric and adult disease is the type of variant. So in pediatrics, for instance, there are three cutaneous variants, macular papular cutaneous mastocytosis or urticaria pigmentosa, diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis and mastocytomas. So diffuse cutaneous mastocytosis and mastocytomas are almost exclusively diagnosed in pediatrics. You don't see an adult with the onset of those two variants in um, pediatric and in um, cutaneous disease. Pediatric disease um, can also be diagnosed, pediatrics, pediatrics can also be diagnosed in, with systemic disease, um, and they can have systemic disease as early as birth. We, we've seen some really severe kids um, recently in the last few years. Also, the difference in pediatric disease is that we expect that this is going to resolve in probably about 85% of the patients. Um, we don't know why it's there. They typically do not have a mutation associated with that kid gene. Um, the resolution typically occurs in adolescence or late adolescence, and they, um, they, it's like they never had the disease at all. Whereas um, adults in pediatrics with systemic disease, you're expected to have this as a chronic disease for a lifetime. Now, it doesn't decrease your life expectancy. It's just a chronic disease with annoying symptoms. However, recently, we've been able to document um, a couple of patients um, with systemic disease that looks like it's going to resolve. So we have an adult that a case report that's coming out. It'll be out in the next couple of weeks. And we have, I am following four children. It looks like their systemic disease may actually resolve. And that's, we haven't seen that and it hasn't been reported. So, um, so the main difference in pediatric and adult diseases, pediatric disease seems to be transient, whereas in adults, because they're mostly I would say 98% are diagnosed with systemic disease. It's a chronic disease. Mm. Do we know if a diagnosis of mastocytosis is often identified early in someone's disease course, or is there typically a delay while, see, while either symptoms manifest or until specialty evaluation occurs? So there's just, it's typically a delay. Um, one, because the primary care provider is usually the first person to notice. So the parents or the patient will say, you know, I have these spots. And they say, oh yeah, it looks like this as a birthmark. We'll, we'll just kind of follow it because all of the lesions don't show up at the same time, typically. Usually you may have a few and then you have a few more and then patients get more and more concerned as, as the lesions increase in number. So initially, most of the uh, primary providers will not identify this. One, because it's rare and a lot of primary providers haven't seen it before. So they've never seen a patient with mastocytosis, but they've seen a patient with some of the other um, diseases that, that may look like mastocytosis, like cafe spots or neurofibromatosis or um, other things that have pigmented lesions. And so they, they kind of put it off for a while. Um, so typically this is not diagnosed by the primary provider. It's diagnosed once the patients refer to a specialist, either a dermatologist or an allergist immunologist. Um, so it, it really can be delayed. I just recently saw a patient, um, and if you have a patient with pigmented skin, like African-Americans or sometimes Latinos, mm. it, it may be even longer. So I, I just saw a six-year-old that it took four years um, to get to the mm. diagnosis because they just couldn't, because she had other pigmented lesions that are not 
mast cell disease. And so they just thought it was a, a part of her entire spectrum. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, and, you know, going back to just the, the nuances and, and there's just so much ground to cover for us to partake in a detailed discussion um, regarding the various types and uh, subtypes of mastocytosis. But as we shift gears towards treatment, can you offer some thoughts in regards to just general approaches to treatment? Are we treating just symptoms or is there a way to treat the underlying uh, cause of the disease? Tell us a little bit more. So I'm glad you asked that question because it almost all of the variants of mastocytosis, even systemic disease, the main treatment approach is symptomatic. So you're basically treating the symptoms. You're not um, reducing the number of mast cells. Mast cells are pretty resistant to reduction. And so they're, they're lifelong. We don't know how long they stay um, in the tissues, but they're really hard to get rid of. So mainly you're looking at treating the symptoms from the mast cells. So Histamine is one of the, the mediators or the chemicals that cause most of the symptoms. So flushing, itching, hives, headache, um, GI um, cramping. And so we want to treat histamine with antihistamine. So the first one is an H1 antihistamine to try to counteract the symptoms associated with that histamine release. But we also... Um, may have our patients on an H2 antihistamine because that's targeted more towards patients that have acid reflux, but sometimes it's not enough and patients have to go on something called a proton pump inhibitor to decrease the acid production because there's something about that, that histamine in the, in the system that causes an overproduction of acid. And there's another medication, chromaline sodium, that's taken orally or in a topical cream. Now, chromaline was kind of produced as a mast cell stabilizer. But, you know, I've talked to the people at the company and they said it's really not supposedly absorbed systemically. It's supposed to stay locally and not get absorbed into the systemic system or in the in the bloodstream. But patients will say that they have effects that you would think would be systemic. But the, the company assures me that it's not absorbed systemically, but patients say that it, it really helps with their symptoms. So we typically use it for patients having GI symptoms and having um, problems with their skin. And to mention skin, so good skin care is, is really important. People don't think about it, but if your skin is dry, it is more likely to be... Um, easily irritated or um, it doesn't respond as well. So we really um, promote um, emollients for the skin to decrease the dryness, particularly in northern climates where you have your heat on longer, the air is drier. It, it really helps that the skin is in um, good uh, condition and hydrated, which means also drinking enough water. So we always kind of um, point that out. And then the other thing is to avoid triggers that you know cause a problem. So most of our kids and most of the adults will say that the heat is a problem. So it's not so much that the sun, it's actually the heat. So if you're out in the pool and you're in the sun, you typically are okay. It's just the heat when um, you start to perspire that causes more of a problem. So heat, frictions, and just a few patients will have a problem with cold. But if you know that there's something that irritates your skin or bothers you when you eat it, then you should avoid that. But we don't do a blanket avoidance of what 
what we usually get the question is, should I be on a low histamine diet? And so we do not Mm -hmm. restrict our patients on any foods or any medications for that fact that they may need for um, their care. For instance, we had a patient that had um, ended up having Kawasaki's disease and needed to be on aspirin for a year. And, you know, if you look at the, the list, it's, oh, don't take aspirin. But, you know, he tolerated it and he needed it for his other disease. And so we don't restrict any foods. We don't restrict medications unless you've had a problem with it in the past. I, boy, I'm really glad that you you mentioned that specific aspect. It, with so many conditions that we treat, we sort of have the, these either old mantras or long lists of things that can exacerbate disease. But I think it's really useful to treat the person in front of you and have the conversation of risk versus benefit. That patient needed their aspirin. Uh, is it worth a trial to see if it would benefit their their Kawasaki's and, and yet not exacerbate their mastocytosis? Absolutely. Um, so how do you sort of partake in these shared decision-making discussions with your patients regarding, okay, here's a list of 50 things that could make things worse for you, but how do we sort of, you know, whittle that down a little bit? So we typically, so especially for um, our patients, we typically say, because sometimes patients, they'll read this on the internet and they're nervous about it. And so we we try to elicit their um, primary provider and say, look, if you think you're going to have a problem, we're going to you know set it up so that you take the medication at the doctor's office and have a seat in the waiting room and see what happens. A lot of times when the patient comes here, we will challenge them here. Um, because we, we, we want to show them that, you know, this is typically okay. And we know that if you typical allergy, the classic allergies, you have a first exposure and then it's maybe the, any subsequent exposure, which could be the second, third or fourth. But we, we find that if we do it that way in a control setting, the patients are more comfortable so they don't have that layer of anxiety that can kind of push a reaction because patients with mast cell cytosis, because their mast cells are easily triggered, even anxiety and nervousness and um, angst can actually cause them to flush and, and have symptoms. So if they're already anxious about taking it, just that alone can create a reaction that is really not associated with taking the medication or the food. So we, we try to put them in a more comfortable environment so that we can try to take that element away. Mm. Uh, and do you find that therapy typically needs to change over time for each individual patient? And if so, what are some of the reasons why prior treatment may no longer be effective? So I, I would look at it in a different way, actually. So it's not that the prior treatment is no longer effective. It's that it, they may not need it anymore. So, so mm-hmm. what we do in, in pediatrics sometimes is that we will put them on medications to control their symptoms, and then we either let them outgrow the dose or we start taking them off meds because remember, it's symptomatic therapy. So if you're not having the symptom, then you don't need the medication. And so we do the same thing with adults. If you're not having symptoms, then you're, you don't need to be on medication. If you're having symptoms and then we can't control it with the medications that you're on, then we consider other medications. So we really try to personalize our, our medication and our therapeutic um, regimen for the patients. So cytoreductive or cell-reducing therapies are typically reserved for patients with more severe variants. And that's mainly adults. But over the past three years, we've had 
probably about six kids that have required cytoreductive therapy because even at birth, they had such severe disease. So there's one in Brazil, two in the U.S., and three in Europe. Um, so cytoreductive therapy or cell-reducing therapy is mainly um, for adults. And until recently, it was for adults with more aggressive disease. So now there's a trial where they're looking at this cytoreductive or cell-reducing therapy in patients that have indolent systemic mastocytosis. Currently, there are no pediatrics that are um, in these studies. It's only for adults. There are 46 sites um, in the U.S. and Europe where they're recruiting patients for this. And so, again, the therapy is really personalized um, and it's based on your symptoms. And so if you're not having symptoms, you're not on meds. Uh, can you just describe a little bit further what cytoreductive therapy means? Are there some specific types of medications or treatments or names that might uh, ring a bell with our listeners? So cytoreductive means to that. So remember I mentioned that mast cells are, are hard to get rid of. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to decrease the number of mast cells to decrease the mediators that are being released and, and the problems that they're causing. So initially, um, one of the meds that was produced for something else, imatinib or Gleevec, they thought, oh, you know, it targets the kit molecule. It should work in mastocytosis. Well, it doesn't work in mastocytosis because it doesn't work if you have the most common mutation, which is the D816V, which is in the tail of the molecule. But it does work if you have other mutations that are near the membrane in the molecule, and they're typically in the 500 region. So the D816V is in the 800 region, and the the mutations that are outside of that area near the the 500 region respond to Gleevec. So very few patients with mastocytosis respond to Gleevec. And then there was a a newer medication, metastarin, that targeted the 8 16 area, the 800 area, and it was fairly efficacious in patients with systemic disease, but still it was only used in patients with more aggressive disease. And I think there was about a 55, 60, 60% response rate with the metastarin. And so now there's a new medication that's more targeted for that 816 um, and also uh, 816 and one of the other I'll think about it in a minute, one of the other targets for um, mastocytosis, and it is avapritinib, and that drug is now in trials. It was initially designed, but it's also a PDGFR inhibitor. So that drug was uh, designed to target um, the PDGFDR and the kit, and it has less um, toxicity than the metastorin. And so, and they started out at a higher dose and they found that the lower dose um, was even less toxic and also efficacious. So currently that is the drug that's in trial for indolent systemic mastocytosis. It's already been used in aggressive um, systemic mastocytosis, as is the metastarin. Okay. Oh, you know, as somebody who spends a lot of my time on social media <laughs> as a medical professional, um, you know, when I think of mastocytosis, boy, this this condition, and just listening to the conversation so far, you've described uh, symptoms that overlap with multiple other unrelated conditions, uh, a highly personalized uh, approach to therapy, 
a, a common a delay in diagnosis, specific diagnostic criteria that need to be um, sort of achieved to, to establish a diagnosis. So I, I can see this sort of going rampant online. Uh, what advice do you have for people regarding self-diagnosis and use of internet resources or social media for information related to mastocytosis? So I'm glad you asked that question because I advise against that. Self-diagnosis <sighs> is not recommended, um, especially since the confirmatory labs can only be ordered by a provider and that because these symptoms overlap with other diseases. So for example, flushing is a symptom, but it's associated with many different diseases. And so just because you flush, and there's there's actually a, a disease called benign flushing. So just because you flush doesn't mean you have mastocytosis. You really need to, to have um, a provider kind of go through the criteria and order the tests that you need. So you know you can find anything on the internet that you want. Um, and so if you're going with a self-diagnosis, you could actually be missing things. So, and, and I had a case um, a while, a long time ago, where a patient was diagnosed um, by a provider by saying, oh, this, this lesion, that's um, mastocytosis and don't worry about it. And, you know, they didn't get a tryptase. And it was actually a cutaneous uh, leukemia. And so mm-hmm. you don't want to, because you don't want to miss something that's treated another way. So remember the treatment of mastocytosis is typically symptomatic, but you don't want to miss, you know, a myeloproliferative disease or cancer that really needs to have um, treatment right away. So you don't want to self-diagnose and have the wrong diagnosis um, and then delay treatment for something that's treatable. Mm, That's great advice. And we certainly don't want anybody diagnosing themselves after listening to this podcast either. So please always (laughs) discuss any concerns you have with your personal physician. Uh, I'm sure that the prognosis varies considerably based upon the type of mastocytosis someone has when they're diagnosed severity of disease. But how do you generally counsel patients when they are first diagnosed? Um, So one of the most important things as, as a pediatrician, and I'm a pediatrician at heart, is that children are not small adults. So, so you can't group everybody together. So you really have to separate them because what we found is that the disease in pediatrics is distinctly different um, from adults. And as I mentioned earlier, we expect 85% of children to totally resolve their disease if they have skin disease alone. But in our patients that have been followed, for, we've been following them up here at the NIH for over 40 years now, we've not seen progression to a more severe variant in pediatrics. Um, that has occurred in some adults. We have, we have seen progression um, in adults to a more severe variant um, that um, causes, you know, that requires more aggressive therapy. So in, in adults, the patients typically, as I mentioned, have chronic disease and it doesn't resolve. So there are two distinctly different patterns in pediatrics and adults. So, so we base it when you first diagnose is what is your diagnosis? So I've been following a few children that we're pretty sure that they have systemic disease, but we haven't done a bone marrow on them. We're pretty sure they have an enlarged spleen or liver. Their blood test for the kit mutation is positive, but clinically therapy to diagnose them with systemic disease. So we're following them to see kind of what happens. And that at some point, we will probably do a bone marrow on them just to kind of um, categorize their disease, but we're, it's not an urgent test. 
Whereas in adults, they mainly have um, more symptoms that we have to deal with. They typically require more medications. And then, so now the question with this new drug that's coming out is, do we want to put them on just symptomatic therapy or do we want to have them on cytoreductive therapy? So some of the new drugs, they do have um, some effects. So one of the ones were increase in platelets with avapritinib that they found that they don't see it as much with lower doses, but was did you increase the um, the chances of someone having a stroke being on a higher dose? So these drugs do not come without um, side effects. And so you have to decide whether the drug or being on the drug is, you know, you have to weigh the plus, the risk and the benefits. Is it more of a risk than it is a benefit if the disease is going to remain stable? Mm-hmm. Have we learned anything regarding the safety of COVID-19 vaccines in people with mastocytosis? So, so what's interesting about that is we, we're, we're constantly looking at the data from our European and our U.S. centers. And we have not had any of our patients that have had an adverse reaction to the vaccine. And, and it's been really consistent. They've really done well. And what I've seen in our patients, what's interesting is that our patients that have gotten COVID when other family members have gotten COVID have actually done better than the other family members. We can't really explain that, except that we know that mast cells may have some effect on at least on bacterial infections. We're not sure about viral infections, but it's really interesting that our patients, even that the ones that have gotten um, COVID have actually done better than their family members, but no adverse reactions to the vaccine. Oh, thank you. I think that's very reassuring because I know that's that's always a concern with with new vaccines and any treatment options. So um, I'm glad that you commented on that. Now, as we wrap up, I'd love to hear your perspective on two specific areas. What, in your opinion, is our biggest gap in diagnosis and or management of mastocytosis? And in a related fashion, is there are there any exciting research studies currently being conducted? So I, I think one of the biggest gaps is, is what I mentioned before, is that we don't have enough people in the primary care field that have seen this um, mm-hmm. disease. And so they're, they're not quite sure. So you, you have kind of a delay in the diagnosis um, initially. Then once the diagnosis is made, we don't have enough centers in the U.S. There are more in Europe that are can care for these patients that feel like they they have enough staff because you typically we're we're developing these centers of excellence and of um, referral and research with the uh, a program I am associated with called the American Initiative for Mast Cell Diseases and we're trying to increase the centers in the U.S. where people can go and um, be taken care of by a team of people that are familiar with the disease and and keep up with the literature. So we're doing that. Um, We have a meeting that's coming up that will be open to the public. And it's my my, my, uh, uh, push for our our meeting coming up um, the weekend of May uh, 20th through the 22nd. And so, and we're um, developing centers in all of the Americas and so, and, and in Canada. So it'll be North America, Central America, and South America. And so it's going to be helpful to have these centers that have um, enough expertise that we feel like the patients can be cared for. Another extremely helpful test is the 
peripheral blood test for the D816D mutation, but it's not widely available. Um, and so that's, you know, even if a physician or mostly hematologists will order that, they can't always get it. Um, and they can't always get it in the most helpful value. So with the NIH and AREP labs, we actually get a value, a numerical value, whereas some other centers will only give you a positive or a negative. And so if you have a numeric value, you can actually correlate it with their disease, their clinical symptoms, their tryptase, and it's more helpful with following um, the patients. So, and the other urinary mediators, they're only available right now through the Mayo Clinic. But if you live in a place like New York, it will not allow you to send any tests outside of the state of New York. So you have some places where even though the test is available, it's not available to your to your provider. So so those are some of the gaps that um, that we, we see with that. And so the existing and uh, research and the exciting research coming up are the new cytoreductive agents that I've already talked about that are efficacious in patients with mastocytosis. However, we're identifying new molecules that can be targeted for therapy. So we have this new molecule called a Merg receptor that's on mast cells, especially in skin disease. And we recently showed that it's it's more so in patients with, um, in pediatric patients with cutaneous disease compared to adults, but it's also been shown to be in skin diseases such as atopic dermatitis and chronic hives. And so they are actually looking at developing therapy to target these Merg receptors, especially this Merg 2, because it's associated more with itch and pain. And so other um, diseases that are associated with itch may be able to be used for this, as well as patients with um, mastocytosis. And then there are other medications that block the release of mediators um, that'll be helpful maybe in severe reactions like um, anaphylaxis, such as uh, the Siglet 8 molecule. Well, I can I can hear the passion in your voice, and there's some very exciting initiatives that are already underway and, and exciting areas of research to explore. And Dr. Carter, I really can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to join us today. This has been an extremely informative conversation, and I know that our listeners will benefit from it. Uh, do, you, do you have any last words before we depart? Um, and one of the things I'd like to talk about is that, you know, we have, even though this is mastocytosis, you know, all of the buzz is about mast cell activation uh, disorder. And, and, and a lot of things are being diagnosed as mast cell activation syndrome without having objective measurements to support the diagnosis. And, you know, we know that patients have symptoms and sometimes we don't know why they have symptoms. And, and one of the things that is, uh, I'd like to mention is that, for instance, in 2014, when hereditary alpha tryptosemia was coined, prior to that, we didn't know the disease existed. But so as we continue to identify new pathways for activating mast cells and basophils, it'll help us better care for our patients because maybe they, they are having symptoms that we just don't know why yet, but it doesn't mean that we won't discover that. And so as we continue to do our research and, and explore these pathways, then maybe we'll have better answers for our patients in the future. Mm, excellent. Well, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and all those links we talked about from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so you can receive new episodes in the future. 
Thank you again for listening.